morning, everybody. Welcome to you. Good to see you in here. Welcome over in the chapel. How's it going out in Easton? Good to see you guys. And if you just couldn't bear the heat and you had to stay in your AC, welcome to you guys too who are watching online. So good to be with you. We are in week two of Jenny's questions. I'll explain what we're talking about with this series if you weren't here with us last week. But real quick, uh, a quick housekeeping announcement just in case you weren't here with us. Last weekend when Greg was here and he announced some news about me and Grace Bomb. So if you weren't here, uh, just to let you know, starting September 1st, I'm going to be officially transitioning off of the pastoral staff of Bay Area Community Church. Uh, however, due to our longevity and the nature of our relationships and my calling to preach the word, I'm still going to be on the preaching team. And so you're still going to be hearing from me throughout the year. Uh, so that's cool. We're, we're, we get to stay connected. But this is also a major faith step for us because Kristen and I feel called to step into uh, this adventure, something we haven't done for 15 years, raising support as missionaries to get behind the movement of Grace Bomb across the country. And some of you guys don't even know what Grace Bomb is. I know that because I ran into one of you guys after, like at Starbucks this week, and you're like, so what's Grace Bomb? <laughs> so if that's you, if you don't know what Grace Bomb is, or if you feel led to hear more about the vision of Grace Bomb, where it's going, and, and perhaps be a part of it, supporting us, uh, we have two meetings coming up, one on Tuesday night down in the chapel, and another one after the third gathering here in the chapel as well. Easton folks, sorry about it, you're going to have to make the drive, or you can just shoot me a note and I'd be happy to connect with you personally. So a little housekeeping, just in case you weren't here last weekend. With that, let me shift gears and pray and get into week two Jenny's questions. Heavenly Father, we pause to say thank you for bringing us here from all walks of life, some experiencing great highs, some in the valley, and I know that you desire to meet with all of us today. And so wherever we might find ourselves, as we sit under the authority of your good and helpful word, would you change us from the inside out in the power of the Holy Spirit we pray this in the good and the faithful and the loving and mighty name of our King, Jesus. Amen. So, Jenny's questions week two. Jenny's a real person. Jenny is my cousin. She's a graduating high school senior from Glen Burnie High School. And about four or five months ago, sat down with Jenny and she had some big questions about faith. Even though she had grown up in a church home and was familiar with church, she just had unanswered, deep, looming questions to ask. She hit me up with 18 of those things, and I'm going to try to get to all 18 before we end this series. Today, uh, what I'm going to do is, now typically in this exchange, Greg or I or somebody else will get up to preach and we'll go for, you know, 30 minutes, and then we'll, we'll try to apply the sermon. What does all of that teaching uh, mean to me in my life? Well, we're going to do that, but I'm going to do it this way today. With each question, I'm going to stop and ask the question, what does this question have to do with our life and how do we apply it? So uh, it's actually going to be like five miniature sermons in the course of our time together. So do I have your permission to proceed? All right, good deal. I was going to do it anyway, but I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> Great questions here. Asked by Jenny. So we'll launch out with this one. Hadn't heard it phrased this way before, but very sincerely, uh, Jenny asked, was Mary lying? 
What she meant by that is, was Mary lying about the virgin birth? I mean, after all, here's this young girl, 14, 15, 16, betrothed to be married, so she's engaged, but they haven't had their wedding date yet. It was such a small town, you didn't need Facebook, you didn't need Instagram, you knew what was happening in everybody's world because news travels fast in a small town, and here is Mary with child, and if for some reason... It didn't go down the way she's saying. You would think she might have some reason to cover it up. To fabricate an idea that maybe God did it. And was that a lie? You know, when Jenny asked this question, she's actually in good company. Because the virgin birth is the second most debated miracle in all the Bible. Second only to the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the great interviewer. Larry King had a caller into his show. The caller asked Larry a question. And he said, Larry, if you could interview anyone in all of human history, who would you interview? Larry said, I would interview Jesus Christ. And the caller then asked, well, if you could ask him any question, what would you ask Jesus? His response was, quote, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. That's why this question is so important and is so good. Because history rises and falls on this miracle of the virgin birth. And if you think about it, it really is a big deal. And we'll, we'll talk to that. But first, let me address the question, was she lying? Well, the first thing you ask about a person uh, as to whether they're lying, you survey in general their character. Are there any indicators surrounding this person, their life events, their history, or any other stories about them that would indicate some level or pattern of deception? And on on the first cursory look, that doesn't seem to be the case for this little rural girl growing up in a Jewish home. Everything about her seems to be authentic, seems to be genuine, and also humble. And so, in other words, Mary doesn't seem like the kind of person that's going to fabricate this kind of deception. You can look at other people in the course of human history who who had put out some pretty fantasiful things, and you can look at their life and you can see sort of a string of deceptions, but you don't really see that with Mary. So on the first look, basically, it doesn't seem like Mary's a liar. If you take another step back, you also have to implicate Joseph, and that becomes a bit of of a conspiracy. Because Joseph would also have to have fabricated his own vision of an angel that woke him up in a dream saying, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, she's going to be with child, and that from the Holy Spirit, and name him Jesus. So all of a sudden you have two people from a little rural town growing up in a Jewish home that would have to be essentially conspiring to cover up the mess up of the conception. And if you take another step back and you look at the events surrounding those visions to both Mary and to Joseph, you see other people start having these odd visions around the time of Christmas. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the cousin of Mary, was barren, and all of a sudden in her old age, she becomes pregnant. Zechariah has a vision in the temple with the angel, and so all of a sudden you start to see these dynamic, miraculous stories all starting to build the case for the fact that maybe Mary was telling the truth. Fourth... Thank you. I put that emphasis on there. (laughs) 
Fourth, you also have to acknowledge the Bible itself because 750 years prior to the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah clearly foretold a woman who was a virgin would give birth to a son. And this will be a sign unto you, she call his name Emmanuel. So there is biblical, clear biblical prophecy that at some point in human history, there is going to be a miraculous conception that a virgin was going to give birth, that a kid was going to be born without a humanly, you know, a human dad. And this is a miracle. This begins to point to the divinity of Jesus. And, and this last idea I'll put out there, if Mary was lying, we have to then say the scriptural account is also false. We'd have to say that the gospel writers were essentially communicating a lie. And here's what we know to be true about the Bible. In fact, what the Bible says about itself. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, Paul says, encompassing the whole counsel of the Old and the New Testaments is breathed out by God. That phrase means inspired by God. That means that God's own character is coming out. And God, who is completely truthful, is now inspiring a, tr a completely truthful word to be written. And this scripture is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so the Bible itself claims to be true. Uh, and so given that whole totality of observation, we can begin to say, I don't think that Mary was lying about the virgin birth. But what do we do with that little nugget of truth? If that's the case, well, we got to go back to Larry King to draw some application from this. Because if, if it is true that Jesus didn't have an earthly father, that if indeed his birth was miraculous, that he didn't inherit sin nature like the rest of our humanity because he wasn't descendant necessarily of Adam through that lineage, that, that his birth was a miracle, then that logically leaves us with the fact that Jesus was God. That there was something divine about Jesus. Now make the applicational leap with me. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then that means we all, by all accounts, should be following him, should be learning from him, should be talking with him. And when we hear from him and his word, we should be gasp, obeying what he says. In other words, Jesus should be calling the shots if Mary wasn't lying. We should be the kind of people walking around with t-shirts that say like, uh, I'm living like Mary wasn't lying. And somebody made that right, somebody actually made that after the last gathering. So thank you, Dylan, for making that and I get to show it to you all. I don't, that's not a real t-shirt right now, but this is my point. We need to be living every day like Mary wasn't lying. Because if Jesus is who he claimed to be, he should have the authority and he should take priority in everything we do. The decisions we make, the directions we go. That means if Jesus decides he's going to put your finger on, he's going to put his finger on you and he's going to say, move left where it's uncomfortable or move right where you'd rather not go. You have to say, well, Mary wasn't lying, so you get to tell me which way to go. Does that make sense? You see why this does not only define history, pointing to the divinity of Jesus and the truthfulness of everything that Jesus would say after that point, but it also speaks to how important this man is and should be in your every single day. Amen? Amen. That concludes the first sermon. <laughs> On to the second. 
Jenny asked this question. Was Jesus really human? The way she asked it in its context was, very naturally, was Jesus an alien? And this is not a stretch. Remember from last week, we had this amazing scientist who partly discovered DNA, proposing this idea that life was sent here from an alien planet to, you know, start the first inklings of life on planet Earth. And so it's not a stretch to think that Maybe Jesus was an alien. I mean, after all, he comes from another dimension. And when he's here, he's kind of like bending the laws of, of the governing natural law. I mean, he levitates at one point. He's walking on water at one point. He's healing people. He's doing all these miracles. Like, where does this guy get this power? He's like Superman or whatever. And it's not a stretch to think. But the real reason I love this question is because we have to say without a doubt, Jesus was not an alien life form. Jesus was a human being. Because the very point that Jesus needed to come to earth was to deal with a problem that involves human beings. You see, Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin, and sin is uniquely a people problem. So Jesus had to be a people. Sin isn't necessarily a problem of the, the created order, although it is affected by sin. Sin isn't necessarily the problem of the animal kingdom, even though they're groaning for the, for the day things were made new. But sin is a uniquely human problem, and that required a uniquely human interaction and sacrifice before God. Jesus needed a body. He had to be a person. Speaking to the Old Testament sacrificial system where they used to sacrifice animals to try to atone for sin, Paul, or the author of Hebrews, says this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure... Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus needed a body. He had to be a human being. He was not an alien. And a, here, here's where it gets real. We have a substitution happening in the person of Jesus. A human being took the place for the human beings that owed God a debt. As Jesus hung on a cross... For all you theologians out there, that idea is called a penal substitutionary atonement. That this perfect human being was sacrificed in our place so that we would be forgiven. He had to be a person. But let's apply that even further to say, wow. Jesus, on one hand, was born of a virgin, fully divine, but on the other hand, he was fully man. And I happen to love that about Jesus because Jesus gets me. Because Jesus walked in ten toes and sandals. He had skin. He ate good food. He ate bad food. He had highs and lows and ups and downs. He gets all of your life. He gets the good and the bad. You got family drama. You got issues. Jesus lived through all of that. Think about the time back when his half-brothers and sisters didn't even believe in him, believe who he was. I mean, think about those conversations around the dining room table. Seriously, Jesus. Seriously, you're the son of God now. Okay. They thought he was crazy for a time. Remember, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a pillar in the church in Jerusalem, didn't come to believe in Jesus until he saw the resurrected Jesus. So there was family strife all along. Or how about when Jesus' boys, you remember that time when 
They're headed to Jerusalem, and on, on Jesus' mind is the cross and the sacrifice. But here are James and John, and they're playing like jockeying for who gets to ride shotgun in the kingdom, and they get the mom involved. And the, and the mom's saying, when you come into your kingdom, can these guys sit on your left and your right? And all the other disciples hear about it, and they're all up in arms because there's this jockeying for position. It's like, yeah, when my kids are arguing about who rides shotgun, Jesus gets me. Because he's lived that. When you feel betrayed and when you feel abandoned, Jesus has lived. He's looked over into the eyes of one of his best friends who denied him three times before the rooster would crow. So when you think about your unique ups and downs of life, Jesus gets you. That's an application. Take encouragement and take heart that what you feel has been felt by your Savior. He's not far off removed. He can sympathize with all of our weaknesses. And you can talk to him about those things. You can talk to him more. And you can keep it real because he gets you. Jesus was a person. Fully God, fully man. Two great questions by Jenny. And she wasn't even trying to arrange these things. She was just putting them out there. Now, Jenny lobs out a third and a bigger, bulkier question about the faith that has been built and has, you know, surrounds Jesus. And Jenny asks this question. She says, well, what makes Christianity different? What Jenny means by this is, what about all the other religions of the world? Aren't they essentially saying the same thing? That there's some creator out there, some benevolent being some intelligence, and as long as we do our best, and we're good people, aren't we all going to be okay with whatever truth we've been given and whatever we have? What makes this different than everybody else in the world? So let's speak to that. A lot of different ways you can begin to answer this question, but I'm going to answer it in two ways. One, biblical Christianity is different in how the scripture defines who God is and how you get to God, or how you go to heaven, or how you're re rightly related to him. So let's take the first one real quick. The scriptures teach that there is one God. So that is going to differentiate Christianity from any other polytheistic religion in the world. So the Bible's saying there's not many gods, there's not hundreds of gods and thousands of gods and tribal gods and, and country gods and global gods, that there is one creator God. So that puts Christianity in a camp alongside of Judaism, alongside of Islam. But then within side of that little bubble of monotheism, uniquely the Bible says that there is indeed one God who has always existed in three distinct persons. We, we call this the Trinity because God the Father is revealed, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is a term, another theological term to throw out there, is called Trinitarian monotheism. One God who's existed in three persons. Now this distinctly sets Christianity apart from Judaism and from Islam in saying this is who God really is. The other religions say, no, that's not who God is, and all three cannot be right at the same time, because truth excludes that which is false. So therefore, this is how biblical Christianity is different. There is one God who's existed 
for all eternity in three persons. Now, being derived out of who God is, he gets to decide how we get to be rightly related to him. And that is the second part that makes Christianity different. God decides how we get to God. Now, let me illustrate it this way. In this illustration, I'm going to have to generalize some things. So there's always an asterisk. Well, it's like, well, what about that? What about that? I'm just going to talk in a broad generality. And to help me out, I'm going to use this thing that I built real quick this, this week. Built this thing with the boys. So I just got to pull it out here for a second. Let's take a second to set it up. So bear with me. I got a couple Home Depot buckets. Jesus would have shopped at Home Depot. Because he was a carpenter. That was a bad dad joke. That's all right. I'm working on my dad jokes. Those embarrassing little jokes. What is this, guys? Oh, hold on. I got to slide it this way. What is this? Yeah, somebody got it. It's a scale. And I, I painted it gold to represent a divine scale. Now, this is the divine cosmic scale that is somewhere seated in heaven. And this is the, a generalization, but what I believe to be pretty accurate. That most people in every other world religion essentially say this is how you get to be on God's good side. On one hand, I have these little gold blocks. And wouldn't it be nice if we could just make our own make our own gold blocks. And on this hand, I have these little black ones. And these represent my good deeds. These represent my bad ones. And so, man, I think back as a kid, some of my first good deeds, there was a little old lady, Mrs. Ray. And I would walk Mrs. Ray home. She's like a tiny little thing, probably like 80 years old. I'd help her cross the street. That was my good deed I do on Sunday. And then every now and then, I throw a couple bucks in the offering when I was a kid. But then at the same time, started to run amok with the neighborhood boys. In fact, there was this one time where we all took turns riding our bikes up to Royal Farms stealing um, baseball cards just to see who could get more. And then after the baseball cards, it was stealing magazines. Not even going to tell you what that was all about. But I can tell you that that weighed out the bad bucket pretty good. <laughs> then there was a time in college that I gave Kristen a Bible. So that probably was for the good. Um, and maybe even invited some people to church. So hopefully that was outweighing some things. But then college. <laughs> and the idea here, according to virtually every man-made world religion, is that if by the time I kick the bucket, my good, my good deeds will outweigh or slightly tip the scale on my bad ones, that God will be cool with me, that he'll let me in the pearly gates, wherever those might be located, and that I'll be okay. In fact, we even might hope that God grades on a curve that my good deeds might not outweigh my bad deeds, but I can tell you that other dude's got way more bad deeds than me. So maybe, 
maybe he's going to grade on the curve a little bit. Here's what makes biblical Christianity different. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. <laughs> this is not how salvation works. Because it's not about our good deeds earning or meriting or efforting our way to goodness. Because we simply can't be perfect. There's not enough good we can do to stand in the presence of a holy and a perfect God. So God, in his wisdom and in his love, devised a plan to rescue us when we couldn't rescue ourselves. He sends Jesus to die on a cross to take our place. Very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, Paul tells us salvation works this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is not about the good outweighing the bad. It's not about how much good we do. It is about the good that has been done for us. And our entrance into heaven, our right position before God, or our ability to be rightly related to him, has to do with you and me saying, thank you, Jesus. I receive this gift. It's just like that. And you putting on the shirt that says, I'm going to live like Mary wasn't lying. So I'll just pause here because I'm going to, I need to speak to this for a second. But before I move on, if you're here today and you've held a, a worldview or a theology or you've been involved in a religion that says, well, I've really been just trying to let my good outweigh my bad. Let me encourage you to ditch that unbiblical thinking and to turn to Jesus when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And what I have to give you is a gift. Rest in the gift of salvation. It's life-changing. And it's life-giving. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you in your heart of hearts to trust Jesus before you leave this place today. But before I move on to Jenny's next question, I, I want to address this because... Another application is this. God actually has great plans for these, for these things, these good works. That, In fact, he has good works prepared in advance for you to walk in. And so right in the right place, we're supposed to be about these things, actually. But not to earn, but as an outflow of what's been freely given. That's why the next verse after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for Good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we should be all about these things, but not trying to like tip the scale. We should about be about these things because we're wearing the t-shirt. We're just being filled with Jesus and love and being light in the world and giving these things away. But here is what makes this difficult. For me to step out into my everyday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, to get down and to get out of my comfort zone... And to go and to do what's uncomfortable and to start loving up on my neighbor. I'm going to need that back. Don't take it. <laughs> start loving up on my neighbor. I got to go where I'm not used to going. I am highly uncomfortable right now. Actually, I'm going to back, back up to the stage. But to do that requires stepping out of your comfort zone, getting uncomfortable, or even perhaps being unpopular. 
Let me share one story with you because one phrase when I think about the situation that is related to Grace Bomb is this. Grace built people, Grace Bomb people. But Grace Bombing can be hard. This is the last, I share this because this is the most recent story that was shared with Grace Bomb. So let me just read it to you because it speaks to getting uncomfortable explicitly. This is a person who got Grace Bombed in Baltimore. They wrote in. I kicked off my... I kicked off my July 14th birthday weekend with a treat to see Hamilton at the Baltimore Hippodrome Theater. I was accompanied by one of my dearest friends, but our seats weren't together. My 11th row aisle seat was the best. My friend's seat, on the other hand, was obstructed and really bad. Shortly before showtime, a young woman sat next to me. I was so happy to be there celebrating my birthday, and I was sharing that with her. And we chatted. It was spontaneous and pleasant. I mentioned, this is my birthday, but my friend was sitting way over there. And the young lady offered to switch seats. It's important to note that my friend's seat was about 200 bucks less than the seat I purchased. And I'm sure that hers was much less than the seat that the young lady was occupying. I was speechless and assured her that she didn't have to do that. She shared with her mom, who was also there, uh, about this situation, and they switched. I didn't think my friend would accept such a generous gift from a total stranger. Well, needless to say, mom switched with her, and I got to enjoy the show sitting with my BFF, and we were both in awe of what she calls this total random act of kindness. We know it was less than random. I saw mom during intermission and profusely thanked her again and again, and she wished me a happy birthday and told me to Google Grace Bomb. I'm elated to say that I've been bombed and await my opportunity to drop a bomb on somebody else. Here's a woman who gave up her seat for a lady who was celebrating her birthday. And I heard about this because it happened to be a Bay Area person who incited this little thing. And so I got some of the backstory, and she told me that the obstructed seat was terrible. Like literally, there was a pole right in front of her face, and you couldn't even see half the stage. But the star that night wasn't Hamilton. The star in that moment was Jesus, because somebody did something I probably wouldn't have done. Honestly, when I get to go see Hamilton, I'm seeing Hamilton. <laughs> I'm seeing Hamilton and everybody else can see Hamilton how they came. <laughs> but this person, they must have been wearing the shirt. I'm living like Mary wasn't lying. Yeah, yeah. So, yep. So good on you. Now, a couple other questions about his church. We talk about Jesus. We talked about salvation. Let's talk about his weird church. <laughs> uh, us. <laughs> Jenny asked this question. As she looks over the landscape, you know, in the U.S., she says, why are there so many different denominations? If there's supposed to be like one Jesus and he has one church, why are there so many differences in churches? And it seems like different styles and different this, different that. A couple of ways to answer this, but I'll share it this way. When it comes to the church of Jesus, people get into the church of Jesus as they pass through that barrier of faith in him. And so the church sits on a foundation of apostolic teaching with the gospel front and center. And so in any church, there are beliefs and doctrines that have to do with the gospel. 
Things that you hold and you hold in a closed fist and you don't mess with them. Things like the divinity of Jesus. Things like the resurrection of Jesus. Things like the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. You don't mess with those things. Things like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. Things like that, you hold those in a tight hand. And that is part of what the church sits on. However, there's other teaching in the Bible and doctrine in the Bible about life as a believer. Uh, church expression in life that you can actually hold in an open hand. Issues that don't mess with the gospel that on this hand you can agree to disagree. Things like how are we supposed to do music and worship in church? Well, the Bible doesn't really say. Bible says worship in spirit and in truth. Doesn't say break out an organ. Doesn't say break out an electric guitar. It's like you got to figure that out. There's room to agree to disagree in that. Other things like how are we supposed to baptize people? Like Jesus said be baptized, but does that mean they go dunked in all the way, full submersion, or can we sprinkle them a little bit? Would that work too? Well, people will agree to disagree on things like that, things like church governance, governance, and a variety of other things. And because of those differences, you're actually going to see different kinds of denominations that hold different opinions on these open-handed issues. What's important is that you find yourself in a church that is clearly holding on to the gospel truth and that you feel comfortable in how they are playing these negotiables out. So does that make some sense about why there's some different denominations? What are we supposed to be looking for in the church that we call home? Let me speak to that. Because one of the applications of why is there different denominations is simply just find yourself in one. <laughs> find yourself in a church home where you're being fed and growing. And what is that supposed to look like? Well, there's a snapshot of a picture of a church from Acts 2 that many hold as a great example, things to look for. So let me share that with you by way of application. This is a description of the early church after 3,000 people came to faith. And these people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that core gospel truth, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now it is hard to try to take that church and, and drop it in 2019. It is. But we get to see some things in here that we could aspire for and we can seek these kind of relationships. They're praying for one another. That means that you have some relationships that are tight enough for somebody to know what you're really going through. Not just the, hey, I'm, hey, how's it going today? I'm good, we're fine. It's like, whatever, you're lying. Put a black thing in the bucket. I know you're not fine. What's really going on? And for them to share what's really going on so you can have some real prayer support from behind what's really going on. Seek to have those kind of relationships. And then as you find these needs, both spiritually and material, be open-handed and generous. Because clearly this was a generous uh, community of faith who were selling possessions as any had need. I mean, they were living like they were wearing the t-shirts. One of the things that I love about Greg is that he longs for Bay Area to be a 
church that is growing in extravagant generosity. He's pointing us back to Acts 2. Like be the kind of people who just give whatever it takes to glorify and uplift the name of Jesus. Have these kind of relationships. Have times where you do meet together in corporate worship, but make sure you're in people's homes at the same time. And you got to ask yourself, is this my church experience? It can be. It can be if you seek it. It can be if you pursue it. Don't settle for church just to be the gathering on Sunday. Remember, you are church. Church is people. And seek to find these kind of people in your life. Amen? Amen. So one other question, and then we're going to break the huddle here, and we'll break the huddle over in Easton and in the chapel. And Jenny's question was, why is church so boring? Let me set the context here, because I get Jenny on this. Jenny grew up in a church setting like mine. It was a high liturgical Anglican setting. I grew up in a high liturgical Episcopalian setting, and no kidding, it was like church meets medieval times for me. It was as if somebody, it was like a librarian and a funeral director came together And had a kid, no offense librarians, my sister's here. I mean in the quiet sense, quiet sense, in, I better change that for next one. <laughs> a funeral director and a funeral director, they came together <laughs> and they had a kid and they went to the medieval times to hang out and that was my like church experience. I'm in good company. Church has bored people to death in the Bible, actually. Acts chapter 20, you can check it out yourself. A little kid named Eutychus, he's out hanging out with Paul, and Paul's preaching. And he's going long-winded, he's going all the way till midnight, and a little boy sitting in the window falls asleep, falls out the three-story window and dies. That happened. Because Paul kept going. <laughs> if you want to hear how that story ends, go read Acts chapter 20. But I felt that way too, man, because growing up, I listened to those sermons in the church I grew up in. These guys were not preaching from the Bible. And I felt like this is so boring. They're going to kill, they're going to kill these people. But maybe in that way they'll meet Jesus today because that's the only way <laughs> that they're going to meet Jesus. Anyway, I digress because I do have a huge heart for all churches and highly liturgical churches. And here's why. Because I can poke fun of that because that's my experience. But here's the deal with liturgy. And I think what Jenny is saying is how come it's the same thing every time, time and time again. And actually, we're a pretty free-flowing church, but we have a liturgy. We've got four songs, three songs, offering, song, message, maybe a song after. You guys know it. You're used to it by now, you know. And we all kind of have these different forms. But here's the deal. Liturgy in one sense is amazing because if you go into a highly liturgical church where it is the same thing every time but you're paying attention enough, there are some things in there that are just life-giving to the soul. I mean, you're starting off with like a call to worship. There's a confession of sin. There's preparing your heart for communion. There's taking communion together. There's the Lord's Prayer. There's praying for other people. There are some deep, rich, awesome things I love about liturgy. But here's why I think it comes off as boring to a lot of people, especially the next generation. It's because at some point in time, perhaps like medieval times, when the church decided this is going to be our form in a good-hearted attempt to protect the truth of the gospel, they basically just put their, their church um, functions or, or forms in a time capsule and they haven't really changed them ever since. So what made sense in medieval 
times is a little bit boring now, but we can still have those same functions of call to worship and confession of sin and the Lord's Supper and all of these things, but we can change the way that those things look. But by and large, churches have not been thinking like missionaries to change those things that are a better fit for the culture. They have kept those things the same and that to her detriment. So, what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with why is church boring? Well, I think that's part of the answer. But the other part of the answer is you. Because church is people. You're church. And you're not boring. So if at all you feel like church might be a boring enterprise, begin to be the answer in your church that makes it less boring. Because you have gifts, you have abilities, you have talents and personality, and you can be the answer. People are anything but boring. People are messy, people are dramatic, people are difficult, exhilarating, all at the same time. Not boring. And that's us. So may we be a people who wear the t-shirt that says, I'm living like Mary wasn't lying. And I'm going to rest in this gospel truth that I'm saved by grace. And I'm going to go forth into what might be uncomfortable. And I'm going to walk in those good works prepared to me to, in advance for me to walk in. And some of those might very well be me in this church mixing it up so people can feel the love and see the hands and the feet of Jesus. May we be that kind of people. Are you with me? Okay. Well, how about I pray for us in all the spaces. And then after I pray, we'll all be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we pause to say thank you for your good and helpful word. Thank you that we can turn to Jesus who was both perfectly, um, he was perfect and he was both fully God and fully man. He is our Savior. Thank you for your plan to redeem and for your plan to save us. And we get to be beneficiaries of that grace through faith. Send us in this world with a purpose to do your will so that people would see the light and the truth of Jesus, people inside of these walls and people outside of these walls to the end that your name is glorified. Thank you that we can ask good questions and that you can provide us good answers. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your mighty name. Amen.